0: So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, September the 15th, and this is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, episode number 224. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is The Way to Be. So thank you for being here with me today. And uh, of course, taking advantage of the warm weather and an opportunity to be out here in the Way to Be Academy, aka a shed with bees in it observation hives full there's even one behind the camera you might if the audio is really good pick up some queen piping that's right why because all of the uh, observation hives swarmed again this month so they have new queens who knew and uh, what's going on outside 68 degrees Fahrenheit sunny beautiful by the way so See, I'd rather do this for you than be outside dealing with the beehives. Although really, this is a great beekeeping day here in the Northeastern United States, state of Pennsylvania. And uh, wind, velocity is even under control, 1.6 miles per hour, 59% relative humidity, which is fantastic. I also don't know if you can hear them. All the hives are venting. The nectar flow is on. So 59% relative humidity, hot summer, hot, sunny day is really good for the bees. And uh, let's see your best beekeeping days coming up ahead. For those of you in my neck of the woods and northeast of me, it's looking like Tuesday and Wednesday are the best. Why? Because this weekend 50% chance of rain. Bees don't like cloudy days. Doesn't mean you can't get out there. I don't want you to put it off. If that's your only beekeeping day, do it, but please Try not to open your beehives on really cloudy days, windy days, rainy days, and uh, when you're in a bad mood. Don't be in a rush. Take your time. In the opening sequences, I'm just going to run this down really quick because some people get annoyed when I don't name the flowers. The Maximilian sunflowers are finally blooming and that's fantastic. The bees are all over them and that's hit and miss every year. Sometimes the bees don't seem to pay a lot of attention to them, but we've planted thousands of them through the years. And here's the good point about the Maximilian sunflowers. They're really tall. They're perennial. So they come back all the time. And guess what? They're not spreading very fast. So they're not behaving like an invasive and they have multiple blooms. How long do the blooms last? Right into October. So that's a late season forage for the honeybees. What else is out? Hyssop still going strong. Goldenrod, Kind of getting to the end though now. So I do see some goldenrod that hasn't quite finished blooming, but I'm also seeing lots of brown flowers on the goldenrod. Asters are in full bloom. Bees seem to be kind of ignoring them. At least the native bees are paying attention to asters. The honeybees are all over the easy pickings, the bigger blossoms like the cosmos. Those flowers that had the brilliant colors in the opening sequence, those are cosmos. The problem with those is that you have to plant them every year I know they self-seed some people have planted them by the thousands you you could plant a whole acre of them but you know what? the reseeding is kind of weak based on my observations here where I live Uh, we plant them in spring and uh, they're supposed to reseed but I bet it's about 1% and this year I had problems the deer actually wanted to eat them one of the things the deer have not eaten are those Maximilians. So if you want to know what we're going to talk about today, please look down in the video description below and you'll see exactly what the topics are and associated links for further reading, for example. Also, if you're doing chores, working in your shop or something like that, while you're listening to this, it's a podcast. So if you just Google the way to be podcast, you'll find out that this is pretty accessible. All of this uh Entire series as a playlist is available too. You can also go to my website, which is thewaytobe.org. Once you go there, uh, you'll see that there are pages that have all the podcasts on them. So if you just tag one of the pages, for example, it makes it easier for you to find. And let me see what else. How do you submit your own question? That's a good question. Uh, go to thewaytobe.org and click on the page, the way to be, and there's a form. Put in as much information as you want about yourself you don't have to have your email although if it's kind of an emergency if there's a question that just can't wait and you want to know something right away i tend to reply to those quickly because time is of the essence things are happening fast this time of year in fact too fast in some cases so that's where you can submit your question and or just a topic maybe which leads me right into my very first topic for today and it's a great one by the way. So I want to thank for question. Number one, first name, Keith, no last name, Lincoln, Nebraska. And uh, all it is is Keith wanted to pass on. It says, just wanted to pass on a link for you to share with your viewers. That would be you right now looking at me and listening. It's our U S regional honeybee forage map from NASA. Very helpful exclamation point almost didn't click the link i thought ah nasa forage website whatever so anyway i clicked the link that keith provided thank you keith if you're watching right now and i should actually make this the cover shot for today look at that in fact i think i'll hold it up long enough to make it the cover shot right there is the page we're talking about you probably didn't get it so I'll tell you what it is. And there'll be a link right down in the video description below, but it's a list of honeybee forage species within region 10 for the state of PA. So when you get to the website, which I will put the link to down in the video description, cause it's a long one. HTTPS honeybeenet.gsfc.nasa.gov slant honeybee slant forage region slant, dot, PHP question mark, which is a query, right? Interesting. But here's what I like about it. I never knew this existed. See what happens. First of all, no one is smarter than everyone. That's why we're a collective. That's why we have viewers and people responding because it goes right down the list. And here's what's cool about it. Uh, Just for my area, it not only lists the family Latin name of the plant and the USDA code for it, which is what you lock into. Also your geocode, your ag code and stuff like that has the common name, for example, dandelion. And here's what's funny too, dandelion, comma, blowballs. That's pretty funny, because that's what kids do with the seeds when the dandelions are gone by. I didn't even know they were called that. But the they begin to bloom. This is the best part about this and why I hope you'll go to it. They begin to bloom in the third month. So that's March. If I'm wrong, somebody will happily correct me. The end of the bloom, It's the ninth month and then they have significance. So is it a significant source of nectar and or pollen? They list that too. So that's what's cool. I don't want to go down the entire list, but you can very easily, for those of you who are planning for next year, and I hope you are, long-term planning when it comes to landscape is very important. If you look for these items, like for example, there's plants in here that bloom from the 5th through the 10th month. So right now, we're looking at what's going to provide resources for our bees at the end of the year. So we'd look at the end bloom month. I don't need to go down the whole thing. I'm just telling you I'm very happy that this was sent to me. Um everything's in here. It's very cool. Those are your tax dollars at work, by the way. You might as well make use of them if they're if They're doing that and that's a government website. Who knew, a useful government website. They all are, I'm sure. Question number two comes from Troy, Lebanon PA. Can I keep Flow Hive Supers with Flow Frames in them, in the freezer all winter? Will it cause any damage to the frames? I'm looking to protect them from pests and I have a freezer I can dedicate just for that purpose. You know what I think is fantastic about that? You have a freezer dedicated just for that purpose. When I was a kid, we had neighbors with those freezers, those horizontal freezers, and they had the sliding racks on top and everything. The deep freeze, they called it. I wish I had one of those just for honey and stuff. But anyway, let me move right into that. Putting frames that you don't have time for. It doesn't matter if these are flow super frames. It doesn't matter if they're the flow frames. It doesn't matter if they're just capped honey and you don't want your honey to set inside the cells before you've had a chance to extract them. So putting your honey in the freezer is an excellent move. Why? It does a number of things. One is that it stops all activity in the honey. So for example, if your honey is prone to crystallization, for example, we have Cosmos right now, not Cosmos aster's aster's and goldenrod tend to set easily over a short period of time especially for those of us who don't do a lot of filtering people like me keep the honey raw so anyway if you put it in the freezer it will not crystallize so it stops all that activity so it's a great move plus any pests pests like what well eggs for example that are laid by that dreaded wax moth if they happen to be in the honeycomb and they and they do by the way It gets into the comb, for example, that's up against the glass here, and then you see the little, I don't even know how they get that far with all the bees in there, but you'll see little wax worms forming. They're really tiny, which means they emerge from eggs somehow, somewhere, and then they're actually living in the beeswax. If you didn't have glass where that beeswax is, you wouldn't see these tiny wax worms. The good news is as they get bigger, they emerge through the wax because it can't contain them anymore and the bees kill them. Yep. Bees take care of them, but if you put your beeswax and your honey and everything else right into your freezer, it doesn't freeze the honey, right? Because the honey's freezing temperature is much lower than what most people have in their freezer. But what it does do is kills all eggs, larvae, things like that that might exist in your uh, honeycomb. So yeah, it's an excellent move. The second part of the question is, does it damage the plastic? There is no freezer that you have in your house that could damage the plastic that's part of the flow hive or any other plastic that goes inside your hive, which would include plastic foundations from places like Man Lake, Pierco, Acorn, and Premier. They would not be altered from freezing and thawing. The only risk to plastic when it's freezing like that, it doesn't alter its composition. What it does is makes it brittle. So for example, you wouldn't want to cycle or put it through any kind of impact when it's really frozen. So no alteration, no damage, way to go. Looking to protect from pests. So Troy, and anybody else who has a massive, awesome freezer, wouldn't it be cool to just have a walk-in freezer? You put everything on a rack and just roll it right in there. And then when you're ready to extract your honey 48 hours ahead of time, you roll that same rack into your dryer room, your warming room that takes it up to 99 degrees fahrenheit so it's ready for extraction and it's all pest free those of you who are collecting comb honey and things like that you must or should run this through a free cycle you don't want to sell somebody or give somebody comb honey like ross rounds hog halves whatever you do just cut comb which by the way the best cut comb tool that has its own thermostat built in and everything else for the four by fours or the two by fours you might know what i'm talking about Um, comes from pierce manufacturing pierce makes the best auto calibrated um, like comes to the perfect temperature for cutting cut comb. get those if you don't have them they're the best so that's it yes you can do that question number three comes in here Jerry all right you know I used to say people's full names first and last but some people didn't enjoy being called out but Jerry H will say urgent question. I have two flow hives. The first has a deep brood box, a deep super, which is pretty much full of honey and ready for winter. I also built two of the feeders you use and I'm using the rapid round feeders on both of my hives. By the way, I'm in Michigan. I inspected both of my hives yesterday and my second hive has a deep brood box with a medium super and feeder on top of that. The brood box is pretty much full of pollen, nectar and capped honey. Zero, this is critical, zero brood eggs or larvae. The bees also have very little nectar in the medium super. By the way, this hive had a bee weaver queen in it and I'm not sure what my options are. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. I'm on my third year of beekeeping. So I already responded uh, to Jerry because he included his email. If you are talking about something that time is of the essence, please do include your email. I don't share your emails with anybody anywhere at any time for any reason. But I did give a response to Jerry already. So here's the thing, what's missing? So we have two hives, right? One is really good, double deeps by the way. The other one is a deep with a medium on top and then the feeder shim on top of that. And that deep with the medium super on it uh, has no brood. What are your thoughts? What do you think's happening? That's right, it's queenless. My high suspicion is that it's been queenless. And although that has been queenless for how long? For 21 days at least. How do we know that? No capped brood. So if there was a queen in there within the last 21 days, there would be larvae at some state of development. There would definitely be some pupa left over, right? For example, these have requeened themselves. There is still some capped brood in here, and uh, they're emerging as recent as yesterday. So I know. It's been less than three weeks since uh, the Queens left me, didn't like the accommodations and took off. So here's what I suggested for Jerry. I suggested that you take your weak colony. I think it's too late. For example, unless you're buying in a mated queen and you want to make a go of it. Um, This is a classic description of a colony that's giving up on itself because what's going on. There's a nectar flow right now where I am. If I find a colony that's no longer investing in infrastructure, if I look in there in the medium super above the brood box, any super above the brood box is not getting nectar stored in it. And if the honey or the wax is not completely drawn out and they're not making progress on that, um, there's no queen pheromone present to encourage them to do that. So I think that colony is queenless. So this late in the game, unless you're going to buy in a queen and take a chance and replace them, um, I recommended combining the hive with the strong colony. Now, we would have too many boxes, right? So we've already got two deeps on that colony. It's pretty full, but now we've got another hive. So this is why it's timely and why i want to talk to you about it. Uh, because you may be finding this in your own bee yard if you have multiple colonies of bees. Uh, some of them may present as queenless right now, and you may not have the time, depending on where you live, for them to recover. Feeding is a good idea. Why not? But I recommend that you take a queen, uh, an escape board, and that you go with the colony that has the queen and you take the colony that has no queen and you take the hive that's full of the box that's full of bees. So if you've got a super on there, put an escape board in, get them out of the super, have all the bees in the deep. I also recommend before you combine these hives, before you combine these colonies, go through all the frames and pick and choose the frames that have the most capped honey, the most pollen, and things like that. And remove any partial frames that are partially provisioned and replace them with the full ones. Because what we're about to do is we're going to go from three deep boxes, in this case for Jerry, down to two deep boxes in preparation for winter so we put in any full capped honey frames until the boxes are full beyond that you're going to take the rest for yourself because here's what i recommend you can do anything you want it never offends me by the way if someone has a different take or a different way of doing something i welcome that there are people in my own bee club that don't keep bees the way i do i like them just the same i'm happy to know that people are trying different things if we all did the same thing at the same time every day every month every week we would have no comparisons so I welcome people disagreeing or having a different approach to beekeeping. I think that's great. Moving on. So make sure those two deeps are fully provisioned. Then put an escape board on top of those two deeps. Put the box that you're going to combine on top of those two deeps and let the bees migrate down below and then remove and harvest all the remnants from that third deep box. We don't want to go into winter with three deep boxes. So once they're out of that and we remove that, then what goes on top there? The shim. So we're back in business, and uh, those bees will be happy to have another queen. I don't expect there to be much, if any, fighting, but you can put paper between them if you want to, but I think the queen excluder satisfies that perfectly fine. So that's that, and I did ask Jerry if he would please share what he decides, how it goes, what the results are, But you have a queenless colony late in the year, and he already wrote back and said he would. So I look forward to those updates. Thank you for that question. Question number four moves on to Fred from Miamisburg, Ohio. So first, uh, let's see. Oh, thanking me for the great photography. Thank you for watching and appreciating the photographic and cinematic work that I do. Your recent Q&A covered OA vaporization treatments. So for those of you who don't know, that's oxalic acid vaporization. It was in detail, but there was one additional area that has puzzled me. I'm in my six year of beekeeping with four Langstroth beehives and one Apame hive, which I have received as a gift a few years ago. My mite treatment of choice is oxalic acid vaporization, but I haven't found a good way to treat the Apame hive using either my flat bottom vaporizers and my Laura bees OA vaporizer I always mess up Laura bees I think it might be Laura bees but it's Laura bees anyway neither of these are well suited to work with the Apame hive now that you're using Apame hives yourself please share how you treat mites for the Apame hive Again, let's touch on mite treatments a little bit here, even though this is late in the year to be jumping on mite treatments. But when's a good time to treat for mites? When you have mites. A lot of the treatments have restricting parameters. For example, that are related to temperature, brood status, size of the colony. When it comes to oxalic acid, it does not matter what size the colony is because you'll provide a lower dose for a small colony. You can even treat a nucleus hive. And uh, people have concerns about it because they've heard the scuttlebutt, in the military scuttlebutt. Scuttlebutt's where it's a drinking fountain. People stand around and make up stories and spread them through the ship and find out how long it takes to come back to them as fact. So here's the deal. Uh, you'll hear people say that it, oxalic acid burns your queen. Oxalic acid destroys any open brood that you have okay so here's the thing i've been doing it since it was legal and i've not seen any evidence why because they have observation hives i treat these observation hives look there's here's a i don't know if it shows the quarter inch uh, little pole is right here for oxalic acid treatments for these observation hives what i'm going to treat this one's a candidate right now because they're just about 100 percent broodless you get the highest efficacy the highest kill rate on your varroa destructor mites relevant to the number of brood that you have present, because the brood with caps on them, the pupa state protects the brood and those rotten little bro destructor mites from the treatment. So I treat these that way and I get to see they're not cleaning out dead brood. The brood continues to progress and the queens are not replaced. With some treatments, you do have to plan on potentially Replacing your queen because she can be damaged by your treatments depending on what they are. So we're talking about oxalic acid, and if you don't know what an Apame hive is, these are plastic hives. So this applies to any hive that is made out of plastic. And uh, if only I had some way to show you how I would treat an Apame hive. First of all, we talked about Laura bees. Oh look, there's their website larabies.com by the way i was not given this i paid for it they're very expensive why would i pay fat stacks for something like this because it runs on batteries and i don't have to run my electrical cords anymore so if anybody's in the market for a ProVAP, the latest model that you have to plug in reach out to me because that rascal's for sale i'm keeping this one it is the best vaporizer I have ever found. It's sold through one company here in the United States and that's Larabies.com For those of you who are listening and don't want to look at your screen because they don't want you to wreck your truck. L-O-R-O-B-B-E-E-S.com. That's where you can get it. So now we're talking about, look how weird it is. See what's on the end of it? Piece of wood. They've experimented with different adapters for these, and all you want to do is, if you look at the tip here, this piece of brass, which by the way is very well tooled, um, it gets really hot. So you might have a polystyrene hive, I don't know what you've got. Uh, But if you've got a plastic hive like the Apame, you do not want this little piece of brass to come in direct contact with the plastic because it's going to melt it and it's going to alter the configuration other than the way the manufacturer wanted it to be. So here's what I did. Now I understand this isn't perfect, but it works because I was thinking about, hmm, does this get hot enough to burn wood? Not really because I'm always delivering oxalic acid vaporization through wood, through pine. So I thought it's not burning up the pine. So you can find that they'll sell you different attachments for this that will insulate it and keep it from transferring its heat to things that can melt but then I thought it's not burning my beehive. So what if I just, cause I have a bunch of uh, dowel rods and wooden dowels hanging around in my garage, because wherever I find them, I keep them. You never know when you might need one, which I did right here. So while it's full length as a dowel, I took an 11 sixteenths, is that right? An 11 sixteenths drill bit. You can use a quarter inch drill bit, but I wanted it to be snug. You can even mic this yourself to make sure what the exact diameter, the one that you have is, because it would work no matter what your configuration is. ProVaps, Instant Vap. By the way, this is Instant Vap. I-N-S-T-A-N-T Vap. I see people calling it InstaVap. It's Instant Vap, because it's instant. It happens right away. And you control the temperature parameters on the back. So if you want to stick around and watch at the very end, I show you in detail how I made this, but this is just a pine dowel rod. And I, before you cut this, go ahead and drill your hole in it. And I I realized that hole is off center cares? It still works. And so this goes on the end of it and you put that on there while it's cold. And a little pro tip here, remove it while it's hot, put it on while it's cold, remove it while it's hot because there's some, uh, stuff that tends to come out also I clean this with fresh water you put some fresh water in it distilled water is what I use You put the top on and then you let it steam out and that's how you clean the system pretty straightforward now if only I had like an Apame hive to show you where I would choose to treat where I would go through so oh this one just happens to be right here so now this is an Apame super not just that this is their Nuke box which by the way I like they're expensive not gonna lie but here's the thing every one of their uh, supers and the brood box has these little dials which are wide open in this case vented closed queen excluder and then uh, back to wide open so you can put your instant vap pro vap whatever kind of vape you have you can put it through this hole right here and you'll see that it's nice and round and look this pay attention to the length of it see how the little brass piece sticks through i just put it right there on the front and it acts as a standoff what's a standoff it keeps the rest of the vape i don't know if you can see it The rest of the unit does not make contact with the front either. So that's a consideration when you're creating your thermal insulator slant standoff slant delivery system for your Apame Hive. So you put that in there, you give it the treatment. How long does the treatment take? That's directly related to what temperature you've set it at. Higher the tent, lower. Ray Bradbury did a book called Fahrenheit 451. What did that mean? That was the temperature at which books burn. So I kept the temp just under Fahrenheit 451. So I put it at 450 and uh, you get a quick delivery. And then when you're done, so do all your Apame hives first. It doesn't matter how high or low, which entrance you use, just close the others up. And the other part of that is Apame hives. Uh, this is not a big promotion for them, although it can feel like it. I paid full price for that That was not given to me. Um, the Apame hives have entrances that you can slide close just to do your your treatment so it's very convenient and then when you're done and you take this out take this off and by the way if you have to twist it and screw it to take it off screw it clockwise to take it off because this is threaded on i'm not saying that it could happen but if you have really strong fingers and you forgot and let this glue itself on there and you try to twist it by screwing it counterclockwise lefty loosey as they say you risk starting to unscrew that piece so I would twist it clockwise while you twist it off so that's that that should satisfy this question that's what I use I also have and I'm testing out because I did it with my grandson the the young ever growing know it all now in beekeeping the Lyson hives are also polystyrene so you need something to insulate it so there's no uh, contact there and it works so there you go apame good hives by the way this winter for those apame enthusiasts out there i am because last winter i was testing them out didn't like, you know, the venting through the top. So now we're just putting a thin layer over the feeder that's on top. Which, by the way, I really like the way their feeders are made, and they're good for solid. Look up Appame by the way. While I'm talking about it, if you've got one of the Appame hives, uh, the new feeder for their full ten frame size has that center piece for feeding fondant and stuff like that. This will be going into this winter. It'll be the first time I'm using that. I really like the way that that is appointed. It's expensive. I think it costs like $30 just for the the feeder. But every time I get into a Napa hive, it is so easy to check feed, to feed the bees. It's a well designed system. Okay was that the one did i finish it already okay because here's the other part this is question number four a and the reason i did that is because it's the same question basically so something's going on i don't know if there's another video out or what has got people thinking about this but this one comes from kelly from south jordan utah hive, but just purchased a battery powered lorabees insta InstaVap. oh that's right it's instant vap so for kelly instant vap all right and it's for OAV and I don't want to melt any expensive hives, me neither. And they are expensive, by the way. I also purchased Napame insert with the vaporizer. Where is the best, oh, so you got the insert. See, I made my own cause I'm financially embarrassed. But, so this question is where is the best place and safest location to insert the vaporizer right there where I just showed you. Which by the way, they're also on the back, look at that so many choices and for this by the way because it is a nuke box why do they have entrances on both sides because they give you a divider board so you can create splits and start nukes when you're pulling a queen out when these rascals are making a new queen cell and you realize it and you see your queen pull a frame with brood and put it right in there and start a two or three frame hive right there and put a divider board in which creates a very tiny hive manageable for the bees Those Apame people are very good. If you see them at any conference, stop and say hello. They're really good people. They make great products. I get nothing for saying that. All right. I don't have any discount links or anything for you either. So just find them. They're great. Question number five comes from Rodney Middleton. I can say the full name because that's the YouTube name for this family. That's a great experiment. So the reference here is to, and I don't mind saying so myself. It was a great experiment way above average. And, uh, so there's part one of two and two of two, you know, an orphan queen bee and how they deal with pheromones. So if you want to see a really high resolution video, look for one of two, because I brought out the cinematic gear to do it. And I loaded it in 4k and it's just, it's a pure pleasure to watch it. I recommend that you look for the link down in the video description and go check it out. So anyway, I wonder if you could do that with a mated queen in a small colony that needs some help and combine them. Okay. Now we're going to talk about this because after that video came out and I highly recommend that you go and watch those. The links will be down below because it deals with The bees following pheromones and how easily we can manipulate them. And there is so much going on with pheromones that come from bees. Hormones, internal pheromones, external. So these pheromones cause bees to behave in very unexpected ways. And this is an experiment that I've wanted to do for a long time, but it involves, I'm going to explain the experiment so you understand what we're talking about. For the longest time, I wanted to just take a queen and uh, buy one in, right? So in this case, I wanted to fortify my backyard a little bit with, because my grandson, again, he's involved. He's an official beekeeper now. He's upgraded himself from junior beekeeper status to beekeeper because he has his own hive. And that video is almost ready to launch. So watch for that in the coming week. He's seven. He turns eight very soon. So anyway, uh, I bought in two Carniolan queens because he picked them. We read over the specs and decided what would do well here in the cold northeastern United States. We don't care so much about a giganto hive. We don't need 100 and 300 pounds of honey off every hive, which you'll hear some people say that they get. I can tell you right now, I get nowhere near that kind of honey from my beehives. Um, So anyway, the Carniolans, if they keep their clusters small, they keep their brood small, And they get through winter well because they respond to environmental cues very quickly. They also have some very promising traits that make them good survivor stock too. So once again, I think it's good to bring in that kind of stock. So we brought in two. One of them we created his first beehive with. Okay, so we did that with a split. Uh, The second part is that uh, I've always wanted to just take one out because I've been doing these tests for the last few years with the queen mandibular pheromone noodles. And we zip those onto tree branches and uh, we get bees to join up and form clusters around these pheromones. It is nothing but queen mandibular pheromone, not even from a real queen, it's synthetic. So this is a synthesized scent that some smarty pants biochemists came up with. And it imitates that smell that you would get from a mated queen. We're using it in a way that it's not intended to be used, which is some of my favorite things to do. Find new ways to use stuff. So what happened is, uh, if it works as a placeholder, because for example, the person that wrote earlier, uh, if you wanted to keep your bees from becoming laying workers, you would put a queen mandibular pheromone inside the hive and it makes them think that a fertile queen is there. A queen that's capable of laying. Therefore it suppresses laying workers, development of their ovaries and activation, and they won't lay eggs and things like that. So I started zip tying those onto trees and uh, it falls right into play with what Rodney was saying here. And that is, um, first, let me just be all over the chart a little bit with it. I teach kids, I love to teach kids. I like teaching in general. That's why I'm here right now talking to you through this camera. Um, So when kids come out and we're teaching them about bees and we talk about reproduction, I really like for them to be able to magically discover that there's a swarm on a tree branch, right over there. What just happened? Well, what happened was I zip tied QMP noodles out there ahead of time, a couple of days ahead of time, and I let a cluster of bees develop onto the QMP. And then the kids come and find it. This in. What do you do with those bees afterwards? They have no queen. In other words, they left their hives. They didn't leave their hives. In other words, bees in here aren't smelling what's going on 50 or 100 yards away, and then going, wow, I think there's a queen somewhere, and they fly out and go to it. No, these are foragers that are already out and about. In some cases, they would be scouts that are out and about finding new places, new resources, and places to live if they're going to swarm. And so then they happen across this pheromone in the air and they go to it and it's just a noodle, but they don't know that even though they're very smart, as far as insects go, they're pheromone responsive. In other words, they're just acting on that. Now, if I leave them there for a couple of days, what happens? Would they just starve and die on that branch? Let me just tell you, there's so much going on with that cluster on that branch that I had no idea about. I also do a lot of research and look for literature on things like this. And there are bees, even from the cluster, that fly out and come back and provision those that are clustered there because you see trophallaxis happening. What is trophallaxis? Well, that's when the foraging bee comes back and the bees are stuck there, stick their tongues out, and they feed from this delivery. I don't know if it's water, I don't know if it's nectar, but they're providing for one another while they're on this tree branch. Now, now that they've been there, this doesn't work if you put that 2MP noodle out there this afternoon, and or like right now, you know, it's 3.35 in the afternoon. If we put it out there right now, you might get 10. You put it out there at 10 in the morning, by three or four in the afternoon, you have a cluster the size of your hand and this is contingent upon the number of bees in your area, the number of bees that are flying and foraging, and what's going on in the environment. So different times of the year, I couldn't do that in October, for example, and get any cluster. But in September, I sure can. So then I can shake them into my favorite thing, you know, a a cotton fabric butterfly net. Just shake them right into it. And at what time of day But I collect them from that branch, hmm, when they're less likely to fly, so early in the morning. This morning, for example, it was only in the 30s. So not that cold because they're in jeopardy. I want them to be nice and clustered, but I don't want them to be in jeopardy when we expose them, because if it's only 30 degrees or 32 degrees outside and I shake off a cluster, now they're all individually exposed and they can't benefit from the body warmth of the other bees. So wait for it to warm up. Not enough to fly, but warm up enough that uh, they're not in jeopardy. So let's say 51 degrees, sunny. Shake them into your butterfly net and then take the butterfly net with the bees in it and uh, just lean it up against the hive that you want them to go in. Some colony that could use a boost, maybe just transferred some brood, maybe transferred some eggs, maybe you're starting another colony, maybe just installed a new queen. Those are great candidates for collecting these random clusters of bees and just putting them in front. Now what if only half of them go in that hive and the rest fly away? You still got a couple thousand bees that are gonna benefit that colony because they're gonna take ownership of it, why? Because now they're in a state of accepting the pheromone of almost any fertile queen. This is why there's so much drift going on. Bees are randomly responding to the pheromone of a queen right colony and they're joining it it is strange on the flip side of that a colony that is without a queen does not pick up random drifters a colony that was out that is without a queen and without real queen mandibular pheromone or some synthetic they start to shed their numbers and what i think i don't have any way to validate it it just makes sense to me see if it makes sense to you i think without that binding queen mandibular pheromone I think a lot of these foragers realize in that colony that uh, they're doomed. That they're just going to die off through attrition, right? So while they're out foraging, they come across a queen right colony and they just join up. That's why we get thousands of bees in colonies that are not progeny of the resident queen. Because they are shifting over and just going to different hives at different times when they fly through the pheromone stream. And this is why I can take a synthetic... QMP Noodle, somebody's gonna say, where do you get those? You get them from Better Bee. You might be able to get them from other places but Better Bee is where I get them and they're dirt cheap. You get two of them for $5 and something and they send them first-class mail, stick them in the freezer and you have them if you need them. I don't recommend putting them out this time of year. In fact, I have to withdraw the ones that I have out because I'm not gonna be fortifying any colonies but yes, it absolutely works. But the question, the way Rodney worded it, I wonder if you could do that with a mated queen in a small colony that needs help to combine them. You can, but you don't use a queen to do it. Use just the QMP noodle to do it. We're not through talking about that stuff. That was question number five. A lot of people responded. In fact, I love how thought provoking uh, two of two in this um, queen lost queen scenario video Uh, the number of comments and the kinds of discussion that's come out of that is really interesting and exciting. So now we move on to question number six, which comes from Kenneth, which is also the YouTube name. I wonder if you have not stumbled on a swarm control method. Since it is pulling bees from other hives, it might delay swarms. Plus the bonus is it is in a location of your choosing and time. The only thing is you might have to rear your own queen or two else splitting might be more effective. Okay. So I don't think, and here's why I say this, I don't think it's an effective form of swarm control. So whether it's the QMP noodle or actually zip tying what I call a queen on a stick, uh, zip tying a queen in her cage onto a stick and putting that on a tree branch. The key also here, is that the tree branch and the tree that I used is already frequently used by swarms. So for some reason, the bees like this tree and it's not always the same branch. So it made it very easy for me to decide, you know, I did it for my own convenience. I put it at eye level, I put it on a tree branch, it looked like it could support some weight and uh, not swarm control though. And the reason is swarm control really happens within each individual colony. Uh, Because keep in mind what I just said, some of these bees that are glomming on to a tree branch um, may actually be coming from colonies that are actively failing. So this would not help because colonies that are about to swarm are actually doing extremely well. Their productivity is high, their provisioning is high, they probably have a bunch of drones in there. They also have a lot of resources, so you would expect to see lots of pollen in nectar and that's being you know dried down and you've got honey that's capped so those are things that stimulate a colony to split and create a swarm so would that be the source of bees that are just randomly joining up with other colonies in the form of drift or the ones that would be attaching themselves to an artificial pheromone or those that would attach themselves to a queen that isn't even from this area keep in mind the carniolan queen and her attendants that i zip tied to that tree Uh, Came from California. There is no and most of my bees here have come from bee weaver stock The other thing is uh, the swarms and everything that I'm manipulating around here and the colonies that are drifting into one another are my own so for all of these years, I'm cycling my own successful wintering stock right back into my own apiary It's the other thing why I felt like it was okay to go with my grandson suggesting that we bring in some Carniolans because now we've got some genetic diversity here. But the reason I wanted to bring that up is they're not recognizing their own genetics in another queen or in another bee, right? They're flying into unfamiliar genetics, just a QMP, a queen mandibular pheromone, and they're joining up and the cluster wasn't little. If you haven't seen the video, I hope that you'll find the link down in the video description and take the time to watch them. Uh, One of two shows the cluster by itself, and it's a long video, I'm not going to lie, it takes some time. But the second one shows what happens when the bees actually try to get that queen to fly away, and it answers the question, did they have their own queen with them? In other words, why would there be thousands? It was bigger than a package. So we created our own package of bees around a queen just from sending her pheromone into the air and allowing them to accumulate. So they didn't do this in one day. They did this over the span of two days. So before you're doing something like this, you also should be looking at the weather. Uh, We know the weather people can tell us exactly what's going to be happening the very next day. They almost never miss. So you can bank on that. So if you know that Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of the coming week are gonna be clear and warm Then, today, Friday night or Saturday, you put your order in because most of them ship on Mondays so that they're never stuck in a mail box somewhere over the weekend. Okay, so, not swarm reduction, yes for fortifying a newly established colony. Absolutely, works like that. Question number seven, again related to the queen on a stick. This comes from Peace People 9895, which is the YouTube channel name. Very interesting, I wonder if you could time this type of thing to prevent swarming. No. I realize I don't know anything about bees, but it seems to me they swarm when they have large populations that feel the need to move out and reproduce. True. So, would this method give you a chance to depopulate a lot of your hives so they're not under pressure in each of the hives? Not really. Granted, you still end up with another colony, but it might be a method to put in place to slow or suppress some of the swarming activity. So, it does take surplus bees out, there's no question. The the question is, is it enough to alleviate a swarm trigger? The swarm triggers are multiple in other words it's not just the population of the colony it's the health of the queen it's the amount of pheromone in the hive it's the brood size it's the environmental cues all of these things come together Um, and so once again I, i don't need to keep talking about that but i don't have any way to genetically identify which colonies these bees are coming from or how far they've come but i do notice this the longer they're on the branch. And here's the thing. This is just to keep the wheels turning on this. If this were just a swarm, right? So swarm flies out, we know they took their mated queen with them unless they're after swarms. And after swarms can have unmated virgin queens with them. And those are the ones that we often, you pull the swarm apart and you find out there's three different queens in there. and You set them in front of a hive and only half of them go in, the rest stay outside. Well, the half that went in has a queen and those outside, they also have a queen. So these are low pheromone, unmated queens uh, that end up in multiples in a cluster of bees. So the thing is, if you control their ability to move on, and that's what we do when we have a queen in a cage, she can't leave. What are their choices? They stay with the queen. Now in the video, and I think it's really fun to watch, they fly away and they try to get her to go off to the new location. There's a lot of waggle dancing going on. They obviously found a cavity somewhere. They think they're gonna move on the way a swarm normally would from their bivouac location and then they're gonna move into that cavity. So they head out. Who doesn't leave the queen? Why not? She's caged. She's zip tied to a stick. So they have no choice but to come back. So then they all come back and re-land on the branch. And this is the fun part. When they collected on the branch, even more bees collected. So that act of flying away and coming back even got the attention. So it has to be not only the pheromone of the queen on the branch, but the behavior of bees in the air. So when they're in the air and they're headed somewhere, I think other bees might see that and fly along with them. And this is why, let me just add more to the muddy water here. When you have a virgin queen and the colonies being reduced, virgin queen in here, she's piping. So she's going to go soon. She's going to mate soon. Uh, they dwindle in numbers the whole time. This colony is half strength of what it was just a week and a half ago. So now when the queen flies out to mate and the colony is in decline because they need a queen to come back, mated, and then we need her to start laying. So when she flies out to the drone congregation area, wherever that happens to be, We know that she comes back after successful mating with a mating sign attached to her body. So that's the reproductive organ of the very last drone that mated with the queen. So when she lands and she comes in there, she doesn't come back alone. And this is really interesting. There's a rush of drones still following her through the air and they land on the hive that she comes back to. But they're not all just drones. Something else happened on her way back, and depending on the time of day, the number of hives in the area, the number of foragers in the area, and the location of your apiary, she comes back and boosts the entire colony's population immediately. For some reason, foraging honeybees that are out and about fly into her pheromone stream, just as they do with the queen on a stick. They join up with these drones that are following her back, and you get this rush of worker bees back into a hive that otherwise had lost its inspiration to progress. So you get this boost of bees. So there's so much going on. That's all, We just there's so much we don't know. But anyway, getting bees and collecting extra bees at a time when you need them is very easy to do with QMP. You don't have to use a Queen to do it. In fact, I don't recommend you do use a Queen to do it. But you're gathering bees from around, get them on the stick, do them the way I suggested, and you're going to fortify your colonies. Question number eight. Um, Again, this is related to the same video. It's great to have a video that causes people to take pause and think about what bees are doing. This comes from Steve Welch's 1955. That's the YouTube channel name. Wouldn't this one be at a disadvantage because they were all foragers and no nurse bees? My understanding is bee physiology continues to change from the time they emerged till they die with foragers not being good nurse bees. And I love this question from Steve. And that's because it's true. Bees go through a predictable progression of jobs inside the hive. It's also true that when bees swarm on their own so let's say this colony built up and they swarm on their own that means they're loading up on provisions ahead of time they're they're planning to swarm they're exercising the queen they've altered her diet they're thinning her down they're making her capable of flight and when they go you will even see in a swarm of bees that emits from a single colony you will see a bunch of juvenile bees in there they will be so fuzzy and silver and fresh looking and the only way they knew where to go is because they followed along with the other bees that were leaving that colony. Okay, now let's go back to what happened with the queen. She gets foragers. Foragers are the older bees, right? Exactly as described, and they come back. And then we take them and put them into a hive, which by the way, was a success. It remains a success, even as of yesterday. We check on these hives frequently now. So my grandson was out here supervising me, making sure that I understood what was going on on the landing boards that they are bringing in pollen. And this indicates that this queen has begun to lay eggs and that those eggs have hatched and that now we have larvae that require food. So what happens with these older bees? They do revert back to jobs they've had in the past. So for example, bees that used to be nurse bees that later progressed and became, you know, landing board guards or guard bees, whatever they were. They did all these other jobs and now they're foragers they can revert back and re activate their pharyngeal glands so that they can become nurse bees again and feed larvae. So they're not as good as the young bees, the new bees that are inside the hive that have that as their first line of work, cleaning the colony, attending to the queen, feeding the developing larvae. These are things that are, you know, at the end of the first week jobs that they do. So, Um, But they do revert back and they are capable of doing that. So it's a great question and they do have that progression and they are not as good at it, but they will revert back to it. And that's exactly what they're doing right now. So we hope to make a video. We have some inclement weather coming up. But uh, because my grandson was here yesterday, but it was too cold, low 60s, not ready to open hives and look at brood right now. Because these are delicate, newly established colonies. So when we get a nice warm sunny day, we're going to be looking at the quality of feed in the brood. So we want to see them open larvae swimming in their resources. I suspect that things are going to be going very well. And the foragers, older foragers, do revert back and reactivate and engage in activities that they would have done as young bees. Great question. Number nine. This comes from Lambrook Farm 4528, also YouTube channel name. Would a natural swarm contain some younger bees? Same question. Okay, a natural swarm does contain younger bees. Did you notice or do you think there could be a temperament difference between your artificial swarm with many unrelated bees and a natural swarm with related bees? This is a very good question. Um, and uh, when we did the follow up checks on these bees, we did not use smoke. We did uh, put on full bee suits just in case, you know, in case they acted up. But they didn't, they were very manageable. They were very easy to deal with. They were all on task. Their foragers were coming and going. Uh, They drew out comb. So they're doing all of these great things. Uh, So they're great comb builders too, which by the way, takes us back to comb construction inside the hive. Once they're foragers, they're no longer building comb inside the hive. So they've activated their wax glands again and they're back to building comb. So, uh, and they're very, they're very calm. Now we don't know what they're gonna be like later because remember the queen, that, you know, down the road, we're more than a month out from seeing a difference in behavior in the colony based on the queen's progeny, right? So that's coming up, but uh, you know the behavior of a swarm that's all from one hive, and then compare that to uh, the random kind of composed, the conglomerate, the cosmopolitan swarm that we kind of made there, of uh, bees just coming from all different directions, but here's here's another thing I want you to think about. So let's let's mess it up a little more. Uh, when a colony swarms, like let's say these swarms went on a tree branch, even they pick up a bunch of uh, stragglers from other colonies. So it's a very dynamic thing that's happening, and I don't understand all of it. I just know that it's cool to watch and see, but We've demonstrated that bees will join swarms even though it's not their colony, even though they're not related. This is why some people have reported 20% of colonies being unrelated to the colony. I don't know who counts those bees or how they do it or what kind of genetic testing it takes to get those numbers. But uh, thanks to the people that do stuff like that, drift is bigger than I ever imagined it could be. Question number 10. Again, this is the YouTube name at B-O-A-K-E. So I'm going to say Boki or Bake. It says, uh, hi, Frederick. I dropped a mated queen next to the box, but can't find her anymore. Will it fly into the box again? So I have so many questions about what was going on there and this is one of the things uh, one of the reasons why i responded to this question normally i wouldn't just because there's not enough information here but i'm going to use it as a tool to try to share with you what i need from you when somebody submits a, a question so drop a mated queen does that mean that you just opened her up from a shipping envelope and you know you're taking her out of her cage uh, where were you trying to introduce her to the hive um, I need to know more parameters about the queen and what her history is with the hive that's next to the box. It says next to the box. So does that mean it's the queen's cage? Is it the hive box? See, I don't know enough about what's going on. Um, So kind of bullet points when people are submitting questions would be very helpful. Purchase new queen, introducing to colony that was queenless, queen fell out of her cage you know just basics like that would really help me understand but what I also want to share is uh would she fly back to the box well if this queen is unfamiliar queens do interesting things when they return from mating flights for example if they land on a colony's landing board that is not their own let's say this queen wasn't very good at navigation. If she just happened to land on the landing board of a hive that was queenless, they're going to start taking care of her right away, right on the landing board. She could go right in there and not return to the hive that she left. Queens sometimes land on the wrong landing board and get killed. Usually they're just chased off. So, but what I demonstrated with my experiment, which I shared over the last week, is that if that queen landed on a tree branch nearby somewhere, They pick up attending bees depending on the time of day within minutes. So when I first just zip tied the queen to the tree branch without putting her on the stick so I could better see what goes on. I zip tied her just to the tree branch and then sat down with a cup of coffee and watched. It wasn't five minutes before one bee showed up and started assessing that screen and then started allowing them to feed through the screen so those would be the attendant bees inside that were sticking their tongues out to that one so we have unrelated bees not even close and they are getting resources from a passerby so i call that the good samaritan bee and before you know it less than 10 minutes there were three or four foraging bees now on that screen Half an hour later, there's 50 or 60. And once they start fanning, once they've had physical contact with the queen that's in that cage, they fan her pheromone out and then they start drawing more bees. So all I can say is if she doesn't fly back to that box, um, chances are you need to be looking around for a cluster of bees on something. She may not have gone very far. So what you would be looking for, even look at the ground, I mean, I don't know what her condition is when she came, although a lot of bees that are mated, when they come in their ship, for example, they tend to be small and lightweight because they're kind of off lay. They could have been banked for a while before they come. So she could fly, and if she can fly 50 or 100 yards, you just do an elliptical search and start looking at everything that the bees could be gathering on. This is also another vote for trimming down the grass and undergrowth in the direct vicinity of your apiary. You never know when you're gonna be trying to find something on the ground, so I try to keep mine trimmed down short. Um, But yeah, look for clusters of bees, and if it's overnight, if it's late at night, then you go out the following day and continue to look. The problem with her is she's capable of flight, so once they get enough bees together, guess what they're doing? They're actively searching for a location to go to. So it wouldn't hurt to put a swarm lure in your hive if she's not in there and uh, try to attract the bees to that. So, But anyway, I really don't have enough information for that. And this last question sent me down a rabbit hole. Okay, this is question number 11. Last question of the day, by the way. This comes from Andy T. from Deerwood, Minnesota. I know you don't have issues with small hive beetles. That's true. I'm very happy that I don't. But if you did, would you consider using Swiffer Sheets or what would your go-to in trapping them be? Thanks. So here's the thing, it's true. I don't have, I don't even see small eye beetles here. And I don't know if it's a combination of my chickens. We don't do anything to treat the ground. In fact, for 23 years, this property has not had any pesticides used on the ground at all. So. I don't know why I don't have small high beetles, but I would also, I'm going to link, uh Atreya Manasui. I did an interview with him. He won a national science award. He's involved with the, uh, University of Florida B lab. And, uh, he did his studies at the B lab along with others on how to trap uh, small high beetles so i much prefer trapping when i first got my you know there's the beetle buster there's all these different traps that work really well obviously there are people with much more experience that's why i want to defer you to um Atrea here he's very promising guy i think he graduates high school this year if he didn't already graduate but uh very promising researcher anyway i like the traps i like baiting a trap When I first got the Flow Hive 2 Plus version, it has a tray underneath, that has multiple compartments in it. And I took the Swiffer sheets and I put them in each of those compartments. But that was because I wanted to make sure anything that falls through the screen at the bottom of the hive would get stuck there and then die. In other words, I was thinking primarily about Varroa destructor mites. I wanted them so it's not a small hive beetle thing at all. I wanted the Varroa destructor mites to be caught in that and then not be able to get back up into the hive. Uh, What happened was it just collected so much debris that um, it wasn't effective. In other words, I couldn't see the things, there was so much stuff in it. I'm sure it was trapping stuff, but not worth it. But I did some checks and this is the most important thing. Attached to this question is a study that's been done and I'm gonna include the PDF. They don't name Swiffer, I think for obvious reasons. They don't name a company. Uh, and that's because I think uh, there may be problems because everything about them was negative. Uh, one of the reasons I like the idea of putting something in the tray underneath is because if you put anything foreign inside your beehive, who is trying to clean it out? Your bees. So the bees are going to be pulling things apart and trying to get them out. So anytime, and this is why, for example, the extended release oxalic acid. Um, The extended release pads, those sponges that Randy Oliver was doing research on, nothing against Randy Oliver, Um, but the study went on and the reason that all got shut down was the composition of those sponges, that there were problems with that as far as toxicity on some level. So that led me to look into, and I went way down the rabbit hole, here's the thing. Swiffer is protected. So if you name that company, it does not matter at all. This is not against them because their out is that the Swiffer pads were not designed to be used as a you know, a bug trap. So the small hide beetles being trapped is not something that they have to own up to. Because here's the ramification. Please go down to the video description and look for the link to this study because it's very important. And I want you to understand what goes on. Those are so they don't, it's any pad that's made out of very thin plastic fibers, right? I'm always aware of microplastics, right? We talk about it all the time. We have plastic beehives, we have plastic foundation, we have plastic supers on the flow supers, and I'm very grateful for laboratories that have the ability to do microplastic studies on these things to find out if microplastics are finding their way into the bees, into the honey, into the environment. So, and the good news was one of our studies that we did when we took the coursework at Cornell for the master beekeeper program, uh, one of them dealt with plastics and I had to write a paper that demonstrated that plastics from these plastic hive configurations was not making its way into the honey or into the bees, their microbiome, the bee gut, everything like that. Now, here's another study, and this is a fresh one, by the way. It is uh, still being peer reviewed. That's how hot off the press it is. So, what I want you to understand is, if you put these swiffer pads anywhere in the hive where the bees can come in contact with them, the bees are trying to tear them out and they're trying to get rid of them, right? guess where it's showing up it shows up in the bees cuticle the cuticle is the surface structure of the honeybee it shows up as a microplastic inside the bees gut based on this research it shows up in your honey so if the microplastics are also because the bees are working it and because they're so fine this is very different than a plastic foundation for example because the mechanical aspect of that to to make fine bits and pieces of wax from or plastic from a foundation is much more challenging than if we're putting something in there that's almost friable in other words it's in a very thin fiber state already which is why it works so well to collect dust and let me send you down an even bigger rabbit hole on that there's a movement to outlaw uh Fibers and pads and things like that that are made from these fine plastic fibers, period. They're talking about in households and stuff, but that's not the focal point of my response here. Uh, so for Andy, please don't use them. I like to say fail safe, right? So if there's any chance that this is going to put microplastics in the bee's digestive system, in the honey you're going to consume, Even on the cuticle and other surfaces inside your hive, me personally, I would never put something like that in my beehive at all. Okay, and I'm not specific, I'm not gonna name the company. Anything that's made with plastic fibers like that does not belong in your beehive. Please read the study, make your own decision, and I would, truth be told, I would rather have the small hive beetles than something like that going in. You've just ruined your honey, by the way, by putting that in there. You've ruined, it's in the bees, I I can't describe it any further than that. So that's an interesting question. Would I consider those? No. Please also watch your interview with, use the beetle buster jails. There's beetle buster entrances. I would use every mechanical means that I knew, but anything that I put inside the hive to trap, uh, the small hive beetles would be out of reach. the bees so in other words they go through these little openings the beetles get stuck in these little reservoirs that are reusable by the way and uh i definitely would keep anything that is a plastic fiber related material out of my hive so now we're on to the fluff and uh for question number 11 is done that's it for today oh i want to give a shout out to this website that sells the great escape uh people wrote me that they were wondering what kind of uh skateboard i would use and i sent them to the Blythewood B company to be honest and uh they were out of stock so this is a 10 frame b escape by the way this arrived today for me uh i bought it paid for it but i'm going to give a shout out to the company i have their name right over here i was very happy to find them so i was doing a search because not a lot of people but several people wrote and they wanted to know where they could source these. These are by Cerasell. It's called the Great Escape. Let me talk about why it works. I get nothing from Cerasell uh for explaining this or for sharing or linking you anything. And I don't get anything from this company, which by the way is called Mountain Sweet Honey Company. mountainsweethoney.com. So if you want to go there, I actually called them on the phone you know why because I said I was gonna mention their company I wanted to know if they had a bunch of these in stock Uh, 10 frame is the most common they have 8 frame also they said they do have them in stock another promising thing is I only bought three of these and shipping was 20 bucks so it's the other complaint with some of the companies that people order these from that shipping is very expensive even from Amazon Amazon Prime doesn't work for that so the reason these work so well number one here we are talking about plastics again right I don't consider these a microplastics risk so when you put this under your super I leave it overnight the reason it works so well is the bees go out through these cones in the bottom these are one way cones so here's your box they go through and once they're under that what are they doing they're smelling the hive above they're smelling the super and they're going to the smell so they're going to these slats these slats are key in making this a very effective skateboard, uh, The old wooden ones that have been around for a long time, I don't know if they've been around 100 years, the triangle-shaped ones, they've got a screen over the triangle, right? And then there's a circle up above and the bees go down through it and then they go out through the triangle underneath. The problem with that is where are they drawn? They're drawn back to the triangle because that's where the scent is because the rest of that escape board is solid. And when it's solid, they don't smell through it, So they actually, if you leave that triangle shaped escape board on there, which is a very old and successful design, they end up figuring out how to get back up into it. So the great escape by Ciracell has been the most effective escape board design that I've found anywhere. And if an escape board exists, and I think it's going to be good, I buy them and I test them out. I see what they do. And that's why I bought three more of these. Why? Because, When you get that warm weather break, and uh, because I have a bunch of them on the rack also, when you have that warm weather break coming up and you have to leave them on overnight, you can't just like get the honey off this hive and then tomorrow do this hive over here and then the next day do that hive over there. You need to do them all at once and there are reasons for doing that. Um, Aside from the convenience and the fact that you're gonna be harvesting honey all at one time, which I think is really great. We also use them to pack down your hives. So getting the bees out of the upper supers down into lower boxes so you can get right in there with your inner cover so when you pull that off, you'll have bees all over the underside. Flip it over, lay it against the landing board of the hive that it came from, and they'll all walk up and back inside the hive. Meanwhile, you snag the super or you've packed down the hive and you're done with that hive. If you do that with all the hives at once, you're good to go. You never get, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm old, but I'm never going to have to buy another one of these. So tools like this are going to last me forever. Basically the rest of my life. I'll pass them on to my grandson. So my shout out for today, I wanted to go with this company because they had reasonable prices. I just found them through a standard Google search for the Cirrusel Great Escape bottom board, uh, Great Escape board. And uh, this is how I found them. So that's their website again. MountainSweetHoney.com And I already got my escape words, so now I can put the word out and you can go get yours if you want to. You can tell them that I sent you and you will pay the same as everybody else. But I'm all about supporting a small family business. Okay, the other thing is um, where I am right now, where you are, you may have already run out of the nectar flow. Here, We're still in the middle of it. Everybody's heavily venting. I use my um, observation hives to see how much honey's coming in, and when they start capping and everything, that's when I start looking. My Ross rounds and things like that are still on my hives. They'll be coming off in the coming week. So, when this nectar runs out, the nectar is the biggest one. When that runs out, robbing exponentially increases. Please be ready for reducing your entrances or putting robbing screens on. Um, the best robbing screen that I know of comes from, um, Bee Smart Designs. It's the white plastic one. They're for sale everywhere. Everybody carries them because they're very effective. And if you look, I don't have one handy here, but even those, if you look, the holes in the front of the Bee Smart Designs robbing screen, the holes are directly where the bees can't go through because robbers are following that pheromone scent. That's why robbers collect that and work on any other openings. If you have upper openings in your hives or upper vents in your hives, you can expect to see robbers working on those this time of year. And uh, so the robbing screen is is well designed in the fact that they have those scents coming out. So that kind of traps the robbers that are non-resident. They get stuck trying to go through where the air is flowing. Where in the top corner, they're solid across that section, except for the opening that you open or close for the resident bees and they know where they've exited in the morning you can even switch back and forth so that works extremely well be ready for robbing once it starts your chances of stopping it are very hard okay I'm just saying reduce your entrances make sure that everything is sized correctly for the resident colony of bees so they can defend it Um, have your sugar purchase, fondant, winter patties, whatever you're deciding to use uh, for this winter as an emergency resource. Hopefully you've left enough honey in your hives that your bees are going to be able to use that and it's above your brood box. So going up, feeder shim on top. Also the thing that has improved my winter success almost more than anything else standalone, it's twofold, but the number one thing is having an insulated inner cover and no top vent exponentially improved my wintering if you're only losing two colonies out of 20 in a winter um, something is happening that's great that's all I'm saying so I have a box around that I had emergency rations so these are your choices for emergency rations we don't feed liquid in the winter time Uh, really cold liquid by the way Uh, will shock your bees and They kind of sit there. I don't know if you've done any open feeding in your life, but if you put out sugar syrup late in the year and it's a really cold night like last night in the 30s, now we're not open feeding here because we still have honey supers on that we're going to harvest. After that, if you've got wheat colonies, your very best bet is to put an inside feeder on the colony that needs the resources. Um, So the other thing is the Fondant Hive Alive Fondant outperformed other uh, fondants and the uh, hive alive sugar syrup once again you add it to your sugar syrup it has a proven impact on nozema so the microbiome of your honeybees there's something else i want to talk about here um, winter patties are also well formulated and i don't think you need um, pollen patties I think winter patties are the resource that you need going into winter. So anyway, uh, the fondant, and if you use Hive Alive, do that after you've drawn all your supers off. Now, if the dose is a teaspoon per quart or a teaspoon per gallon, follow the dose on the jar. We're dealing with some essential oils in that. And I had this question earlier in the week about essential oils. People tend to think that a little more essential oil than what it says on the label would benefit your bees more. It kind of makes sense, right? I don't care if this is honey bee healthy, pro-health, beekeepers choice, whatever essential oil you're choosing to use, don't overdose them because essential oils at higher doses can destroy your bees gut bacteria because they can be anti So they can also have an impact if you go beyond what's been tested and what's been evaluated. And the only one that had the scientific studies supporting it and had stuff that you could read and understand how they arrived at the benefits of that material was Hive Alive. So the liquid Hive Alive, proven effective. The Hive Alive fondant, I don't know a single beekeeper right now that isn't recommending and using the fondant packs and that is in itself pretty incredible considering it's only been available I think last winter was the first winter I ever used it and uh, so it's new material. So the thing is all the hives that have hives live fondant on it last year did extremely well this winter all of my hives will have if they've got some way to feed. Uh, they will be having hive alive fondant on them the reason i mention it to you is because you watch and listen to me and i want to make sure that you have your chance to get what you need for your bees before things run out of supplies right Uh, because last year a lot of stuff ran out and uh at the time when we needed it it doesn't do us any good to have things made available in january uh your your bees are then weakened you want to make sure that they have resources and that they also have backup emergency resources. That's what the sugar's for. That's what the um, the fondant packs and things like that are for. Those are in a semi-liquid state. Now years ago, um, we talked about the dry sugar and uh, when you put the dry sugar up in the rapid rounds and things like that. So we're gonna make some comparisons here. Um, how quickly the bees can get this metabolized right i personally never thought that was that big a deal you know the fact that they have to invert it so in other words as has is this invert sugar is it sucrose is it glucose and fructose already uh, personally i don't think that matters because i can't see a significant difference either way one of the things that did get my attention because we put dry sugar up there and then it acts kind of as a desiccant i don't know how much but condensation forms up in your wrap round around feeder for example condenses onto your sugars and then creates a sugar brick right a hard sugar brick. and then it was actually the owner of uh, bee smart designs that was writing me saying well that's not good for the bees and and there were a lot of other things going on and it wasn't just the owner of bee smart Somebody also was saying that it damages the bees tongues. If they have to lick a sugar block or a sugar brick. And I thought I dismissed that, you know, because I didn't know. So I just thought, nah, it didn't seem right because there's condensation. They're going to liquefy it they're licking it with their tongues. But apparently it does wear down the bees tongues. If you have sugar in its solid form and it's not being liquefied. So that kind of made sense. And we had Dr. Tom Seely saying that now they need all this moisture from inside the hive, which that's great. And I actually reached out to someone that did research with Thomas Seely uh, to get more information about their studies of the way bees use, uh, moisture inside the hive that happens through condensation in wintertime. But then they have to transport that to that scene. So what I'm getting at long way around the barn here is that I guess it can damage their tongues. I guess it is harder for them to lick uh, sugar crystals once they're solidified in some kind of block, right? Where it's easier for them to metabolize a fondant. A fondant is very fine and creamy and smoother and therefore doesn't have the same impact. And there are fondant recipes. You can actually make your own beef fondant. So I would, if if we're just spitballing and thinking about what you could put on that isn't going to cost you an arm and a leg Uh, if you're i would go with fondant over a sugar brick, and i'm starting to back away from pouring a bunch of dry sugar letting it solidify and then the bees going up and licking it so now i'm rethinking that and i think fondant is stronger i would love to know your thoughts on that and uh, if i can find a study that supports The amount of effort doesn't bother me. Bees in wintertime, if it's taking them longer to create their own invert sugars using the enzyme invertase, which they have, uh, that's okay because they're still getting a carbohydrate and they're still metabolizing it. But if it's causing physical damage to the tongue of the bee, because the way the person years ago wrote it to me is they hurt their mouths, you don't know what you're doing. So that's not very constructive, by the way. They hurt their mouths, you don't know what you're doing. If that person had explained, if it's a block of sugar and they're licking it, their tongues are very feathery and it damages the structure of the tongue, uh, then I would take a look at it. That starts to make sense because when they say hurts our mouth, I'm thinking their mandibles, are those hurting? I don't know, but there are a lot of steps involved. So rethink maybe and look into the sugar or that carbohydrate source that you're providing for your bees. Remember it's an emergency food and that's why the bees get right next to each other and they're actually robbing each other inside your hive when they're working on hardened sugar because this bee over here is licking it this bee sticks their face right next to it and they lick that bee while that bee is licking it and they're even taken away like as they're liquefying it so they can metabolize it they're robbing each other they don't have a lot of bedside manner that's why you get these little tunnels in the sugar and so over sugar and you don't want your sugar to be in a brick because the condensation is not enough to help them prevent damaging their tongue. I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? Is it significant? Is it not? Uh, So anyway, whatever you're gonna feed, get your resources together, figure out how you're gonna put it on your hive. Um, Feeder shims are fantastic. Those insulated inner covers, with the feeder shim around it, putting something on there. Rapid rounds are good containers. The question comes up: What will you put in it? That's all I'm saying. So combined queenless colonies. So be alert this time of year. If this is where you know you go into winter. I'm making the assumption that if you do varroa mite treatments and counts and things like that, I'm making the assumption that that is under control in your apiary. So now we're at the final phase: is getting ready for winter time so you're looking at colonies if they're queenless if you find that they have no brood by the end of you know by the end of september that's it combine them or lose them they're not going to make a new queen in october and survive right so those are the ones that you know come springtime they're dead and there's a tiny cluster and they're up in a corner they look like they starved to death but look at the size of the cluster it's very tiny they weren't making any new bees So if they were queenless, and that's why we had a member of our bee club that said they died, they were queenless. Well, you've got this little cluster there. At the center of that cluster should be the queen. So if they died, starved in wintertime, they just didn't have enough resources and they went to that little corner that they do, um, then you need to pick through them and find the queen. If the queen's there, you know it was starvation. If there's no queen there, Chances are they were queenless anyway, and they were just dwindling in numbers all winter long while they consumed the resources in the hive. So that's it for today. I wanna thank you for spending your time with me. I hope you learned something new. Please uh, take the time to look at the links and the information in particular. Um, Just follow up and look at the studies that have been done. Once again, thankful for the Honey Bee Net, that government website fantastic tools, great research. I wanna thank everyone for submitting their questions and topics, and I wanna thank you in advance for great conversations down in the uh, comment section below this video. Thanks for watching, have a fantastic weekend. So thank you for sticking around. This is the instant vape modification. It's just a dowel rod that's been cut down to go over the tip of the instant vape. So I got a three quarter inch uh, dowel that you can pick up at any hardware store, building center. And it looks like you used a 15 drill bit, but you can pick whatever drill bit is slightly larger than the brass tip on your instant vape or the copper tip on your provap, whatever you've got and then make sure that it just doesn't slide off easy because we don't want it to fall off and also make it long enough so it creates a standoff from your vape system and the plastic. So this particular one is right around three quarters of an inch and because it goes up against the hex nut there it uh, won't push all the way up against the unit. So there it is installed, don't forget. Put it on cold and remove it when it's hot. It goes all the way up in this case to 447 degrees, 448 degrees. It does not burn the tip. You can probably find this in bamboo, but this is just pine, which uh, works perfectly fine. Remember, we're pushing this into pine boxes all the time, and it doesn't really burn them. So this is good enough. And this is the entrance on the Epame hive. You have these upper entrances too that you can open at different times of the year if you need to if there's a bunch of dead bees along the bottom for example and your bees need to get out in winter you can open the top i leave them closed all the time but i wanted to show you how it fits in here the wood insulates your vape unit from being in contact with the plastic so it doesn't melt it and you deliver your oxalic acid vaporization and then just close the key afterwards So that entrance dial turns and just put it to the completely blocked part and we're going to close off entrances for 10 minutes after you introduce that and this just shows what the diameter of that hole is so there is a little play there it's not super tight but it won't push all the way in that's the other part and uh, this is the long dowel after it's been cut off you can see i was a little off center there not the end of the world at all and then here it is in place and i show you that it's a three-quarter inch diameter dowel so that's pretty much it. Have fun modifying yours. Thanks for watching.